Sarah. Hi, Alison. So, how did you get here today? To work? Yeah. Yeah, with my trusted bike, of course.、Ah. The streets, are, and I'm not alone. The streets are full of them, and there are loads and loads of people walking, of course. Right, because all the metros are closed, the suburban trains are closed. We're in the midst of a strike a here in France.、Strike. A general strike. Yeah, it's actually now suddenly a general strike because all the unions are on board.、Um, I'm also on a bike. I've been less affected than a lot of people, but for the past week, people coming into work from the suburbs have had to leave like three hours.、Mm. Early to like walk and push into the very few trains that exist.、Yeah. It sounds horrendous. It, uh, it, the pictures coming out of some of these train stations have been pretty horrendous. I do sympathise with people. There's been a lot of grumbling,、um, although. Having said that, there's quite a bit of support for the strike itself. Surprisingly, yeah. Well, and it's about a, a big change in France about retirement. It's an overhaul of the pension system, a simplification, according to the government. Yeah, because there are currently 42 different systems, three main ones, and then a whole load of special systems for specific workers, like train drivers, for example, which would allow them to retire a lot earlier, at about 55.、Uh, the government wants to simplify the whole thing and make the same system for everyone. Yeah. So on some level. It makes sense、um, to simplify, make you know one size fits all,、um, but it worries people. And you already have to think that retirement is a complicated thing to figure out for anybody, and it just brings out anxiety to start with. Yeah, I certainly can't figure out what I'll be getting、uh, at retirement age, whether it's sixty-two, sixty-four, or sixty-seven. Yeah, yeah, and because of course in France, right, we we've all been paying as we work. You pay into a system; it's a public system, and and you do you get a, a pension. It's a public pension behind it,、um, and of course then you. You add a massive change,、um, which is also rather uncertain. No one is happy. The prime minister yesterday on Wednesday finally announced the government's plan. This, after weeks of speculation, lots and lots of analysis by unions, and I mean, really anybody actually.、Um, but it was still not that clear what they were proposing. No, he he talked about the need for everyone to work that bit longer because, of course, we're all we're all living longer, and that the new system will be more universal,、uh, introducing the age of sixty-four. As the year you could get a full pension, currently the legal、uh, age of retirement is 62, and it will remain that way. Yeah. So I mean, there's a whole complicated system of points, and the specifics are still not really there. And Parliament, of course, is going to have to debate this law. It's going to take several weeks to hash it out.、Um, but the unions are digging in. They don't like any of it, and they're hoping that their strike will be as powerful as one back in 1995. That lasted three weeks,、um, a transit strike in particular, and it got the government to back down on the pension reform at the time. It seems people just don't trust the government, Sarah. That's what it comes down to. Even if some might agree that the system needs reforming, they don't trust the way that the government is handling this. Yeah. So we should also mention teachers here, right? Because the strike that we're talking about is a transit strike. It's rail and Train workers,、um, but the teachers—they've been pointing out that this new system、uh, will very much penalize them. The government's actually recognized this. Yeah, and so they've obtained some assurances that their salaries will be compensated, but it would need an awful lot of public money to do that. Yeah, because if you think about why someone goes in to be a teacher. Well, a lot of public service, for that matter,、um, teaching in particular, they accept that they won't be that well paid. At least in the beginning, yeah,、um, they're paid quite low, even actually at the end of their careers, compared to other developed countries. Yeah, and there's this kind of pact, I guess.、Um, teachers know they'll they'll have a pension and other benefits, so they're willing to sacrifice pay for a certain stability and a knowledge they'll be taken care of.、Um, so if you take that away. 
what do you have? It shows that reforming the pension system can't be done in a vacuum. Uh, it's connected to salaries, to unemployment benefits. So it's not isolated from the rest of people's careers. Yeah, so there's a lot going on here. And unions aren't ready to back down at all. Some of the train unions are saying they'll even go through the Christmas season, which is freaking out a lot of people. Um, so there's definitely going to be a standoff in the next few days or coming weeks. Now, none of the previous attempts to reform pensions in the past have worked. Macron and his government were aware of that legacy, and Macron's made it a point of pride and honor not to back down on this one. So this is French journalist Charlène Vanonacker uh, performing a satirical song that she wrote on French public radio. It was on the start of the strike last week. Je me fais flexibiliser la besogne, je me fais benchmarker le boulot, je me fais délocaliser en Pologne, je me fais squeezer les régimes spéciaux, je me fais disrupter le charbon, je me fais paramétrer. She, she's talking about privatizing pensions. And you may have identified, Sarah, a few words of franglais in there. Yeah, yeah, like the French and English mix. I hear flexibiliser, benchmarker, <laughs> outsourcer. Um, definitely English words there that have been morphed into French. Um, a lot of these words are related to the business world. And the journalist is implying in the song that these are working practices largely from the US and the UK, which are now being gradually you know, introduced uh, furtively into France. So, so the song, of course, is a joke, but the issue of this increasing use of franglais is a real one here in France. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, the Académie Française, the French Academy, issued a communique warning officials about their overuse of franglais in the, in the public sector and said that they were putting French actually in danger. Wow, strong words. Now, the Académie Française, of course, was founded to protect the French language. That was back in 1735. To protect and then afterwards to enrich. And the communique reminded officials to respect the 1994 Toubon Law, which maintains that French has to be the official language of the state. But there's been slippage recently. Indeed, the École de Commerce de Bourgogne has been renamed Burgundy Business School. Like in English? Yeah, okay. that's, it, that's its new name. The Aéroport Régional de Dijon has become the Dijon Airport. Université de la Sorbonne is now Sorbonne Université with the English word order. When we wrote about this subject on our website, we had a lot of comments um, on the Facebook page, for example, along the lines of, come on, France, get with it. All languages evolve. It's natural. Stop moaning. Yeah, there's a sense that this is just frivolous. Like, why do we care if French changes and worry about so much about English creeping in? Yeah, but it turns out it's not just about words. And the Académie Française isn't just about trying to ban these English words. It has, Sarah, 40 so-called immortals. These are eminent writers, philosophers and doctors. They meet every Thursday to discuss, for example, what words should go into the French Academy dictionary. That's a real reference for writers. And they work on enriching the French language, including, for example, trying to find French equivalents for some of these franglais words like smartphone and email, which have crept into French. 
I went to the Academy last week to meet immortal number 31, Sir Michael Edwards. Doesn't sound super French, a little franglais there, Michael Edwards. <laughs> yeah, he's a Franco-British poet and writer. In fact, you don't have to be 100% pure French to be a member of the Academy of Francaise. Yeah, it's a kind of, it's, that's, quite, that's quite fun, isn't it? So I went to find out about why they're so worried about the invasion of franglais. And it turns out it is a lot more than just words, words, words. The real problem is that one would have the impression, looking at all these words, that every invention, every um, innovation in the modern world has been made by English speakers, the English, the Americans, etc., which is obviously not true. The French are highly inventive in all sorts of domains but they're less inventive in the domain of words. And why don't we continually invent before the English speakers do? Then they would have the problem. And at the moment, that's not really happening. Everything exactly. to do with uh, tech and business now has to be in English in France. Yes, yeah. and um, even the French president, who is the, um, the protector of the academy, talks about France as the start-up nation. Well, start-up has got a French equivalent which has been proposed, which is Jeune Pousse, which is not bad. Who knows whether it will be successful or not, but it's there. And if you must use the word start-up, why not nation start-up, which is the normal French order. One of the um, immortels here came up with a French alternative to come out, yeah. and it's to have your jour de courage to have your day of courage. Mm -hmm. Do you think that could catch on then? I've no idea, frankly. <laughs> the, the problem, it, it's very difficult to invent a French word or expression at the moment when the English word has already become implanted because the French simply continue to use the English. It seems to me that uh, jour de courage is very good, but it's a bit mm. French in the sense that it's... It's somewhat abstract, whereas coming out it's speaks very to you physical, isn't I come it? out, you know, you know yeah. I'm a homosexual. Whereas your de courage what could be the moment when you sign on for the army. You know? <laughs> exactly. uh, um, that's the problem with many of these. Yeah. And the other problem also is that, as everyone knows, English can work, doesn't necessarily work, but can work by placing words uh, one after another. It's the same with smartphone. We've thought about smartphone and we've come up with things like fun futé or fun connecté. Personally, I prefer futé fun. It's true that it's the English order, but it, you know, it makes you smile. But I think that smartphone will simply survive. Have you put it in the dictionary? No. Smartphone? No. Because um, you told me you're on S. We're, we're mm. not yet as. SM, as far as oh. I remember. That is a very good question. I'll bear that in mind when we get there. <laughs> as an institution, does the Académie Française actually have any power over what government institutions or universities, public bodies can do with the French language? Or are you just an advisory body that sort of gets a bit annoyed and sends out a communique? Officially, according to the original mandate, as it were, from Richelieu, and according to the, um, the statutes of the Academy modified by Louis XVI and so on, we are the final instance for the French language. Officially, if we say this is correct, it's correct. Uh, the problem is that we cannot actually control how people 
talk. As far as the government is concerned, obviously they are the elected representatives of the people. Um, all that we can do is to point out that the loi tout bon exists uh, and that it ought to be applied. And that is very true. I mean, it is the law. France is a bit unique, perhaps, in wanting to protect its language. Why is France clinging on in a way that other countries are not? There are two reasons. One of them is not very flattering, which is that the French obviously are rather vexed that French didn't become the universal language, whereas the Spaniards and the Arabs don't seem to mind that theirs didn't. Um, the deeper reason, I think, is that uh, the French really do have a great love of their language and that they are aware and I am aware very much that the way in which a people speak their native language influences all that they are and all that they think. In other words, if, if the French really began to use so much English that they were beginning to think in English, this would be dangerous to the specificity of their way of thinking. What is this French specificity, as they say, in terms of the way the French think? You can see the difference in the use of very simple daily expressions. For instance, the French talk about un concours hippique. The English say a horse show. And the English say a horse show because it involves horses. The French haven't got the word horse except in hippique. But you need to know Greek to know that Hippos in Greek means a horse. They will talk about un quotidien, quotidianus in Latin, daily. We talk about a daily newspaper. And I have the impression that the French like their language to, as it were, hover slightly above reality. Um, you're smiling because it does seem a bit strange to English speakers. But I think from their point of view, there is reality, but language is there to enable us to see reality as a whole and to elevate ourselves slightly above it so that we can uh, comprehend, but also judge and, and change and so on. For me, it's important that the French keep this particular way of seeing things. And Introducing English words from time to time, why not? It may be, indeed, a way of enriching the French language. But introducing a whole um, army of English words could lead to the French beginning to think differently, beginning to think a little bit like the English. We wouldn't like them to think like the English. So, in conclusion, how relevant is the Académie Française today, in 2019? I think it's extraordinarily relevant because the French are more and more aware of the importance of the French language, given that it is becoming, if I may say so, less and less important in the world. It's part of their, their being explicitly in a way that English is not so explicitly part of the being of an English person. An English person speaks English, and that's it. Whereas the, the French feel that the, the French language is part of what they are. Uh, and what they are is partly 
the beauty of the French language. Sarah, I had a really good chat with Sir Michael, in fact, and he gave me a lot of insight into the differences between French and English and how they've shaped the way that people actually think. So anyone who's interested in hearing a bit more of that, well, they can go onto our website, rfienglish.com. So today, in our look at French history, we're going to be talking about Michel de Nostradamus, a.k.a. Nostradamus. He's believed to have predicted all kinds of things, hasn't he, in his writings? Yeah, but was he a prophet or was it just wishful thinking? So he was born on December 14th or 15th, uh -huh. not sure which, uh, 1503 in Provence. So he trained as a doctor. He was living at the time when plague was ripping through France. He probably lost his wife and kids to it. Between 1540 and 1545, he wandered around the country treating people. He supposedly came up with a plant-based cure for the plague. Obviously, it wasn't that effective. Um, but he's best known for Les Prophéties. That was first published in 1555. It's a collection of quatrains. These are short poems of four lines that seem to predict the future. Many swear that they predicted global events like the rise of Hitler or the assassination of JFK. But it's those quatrains, when you look at them, they're not that clear. They're full of metaphors, mythological references. They're not that straightforward. So give me an example. Okay, so here's one. It's maybe the most famous one. The young lion will overcome the older one on the field of combat in a single battle. He'll pierce his eyes through a golden cage. Two wounds made one, then he dies a cruel death. Um, Who's dying here? Oh, I don't know. It's the not really lion. clear, no, right? Richard the Lionheart, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, four years after he published the book, King Henry II, the King of France, was killed in a joust by the Comte de Montgomery. The King Henry being the older one in this prophecy, the Count the Young Lion, both had lion emblems on their shields, as it turns out. The count pierced through the king's visor with two shards, one through the eye, one through the temple. As the prophecy said, two wounds made one. And the king did die a cruel death. He suffered 10 days before actually dying. So Fascinating <laughs> non-historical facts. What, what else is that? All right, so here's one. From the enslaved populace, songs, chants, and demands, while princes and lords are held captive in prisons, these will in the future be headless idiots, be received as divine prayers. What's that one? Headless idiots are something to do with the French Revolution. All right, so that's the benefit of historical hindsight. Um, some do say this was a prediction of the French Revolution. Indeed, the aristocracy who, you know, were held locked in the Bastille, held captive in prisons, as Nostradamus wrote, or didn't. Hmm. So was he a prophet? Was he a time traveler, some say? Um, he personally rejected the title of prophet. Um, some, though, say this is all just complete nonsense, that he wrote down enough things in a mysterious enough ways that they could apply to anything. Yeah, good spin doctoring. Yeah, yeah, and also, again, with, with hindsight, you know, maybe you can apply it to the back of history. Um, and he also didn't really seem to offer recommendations about how we should prepare or deal with all of these predictions of catastrophes. That would seem to be up to us. So we're going to talk about a rock now in Brittany, in northern France. Brittany, a menhir, perhaps. All right. So what's a menhir, actually? Um, 
those are these standing rocks. You know, Brittany has loads of them. In fact, the region has its own mythology all around the way that stones are aligned and tombs and burial mounds. Like, some, like Stonehenge, kind of? Yeah, that kind of thing, mm. yeah, stone alignments. And some people still believe that the dolmens, so that's the word for tombs, were created by fairies. Mm. Uh, Merlin the Enchanter, for example, is believed to have been buried in the magical forest of Brosseliand near Rennes, and people still flock to see it. Okay, well, this is a mysterious rock, um, maybe not made by fairies, <laughs> who knows, but actually we don't know. For years now, people have been wondering what's been carved onto it, its writing. Um, many believe it dates from the 1700s, um, and it's at least partly in the regional language, Breton. There's been no convincing translation so far, um, and recently the rock has made news, because the town it's in launched a contest earlier this year to get input, and dozens of proposals have come in from all around the world from professional and amateur historians, linguists, and archaeologists. Yeah, very sappy uh, tourism I guess promotion. so, to some extent, and also just curiosity, I suppose. Yeah. So the rock is near the city of Brest, on the western tip of France, in Finisterre, the end of the world, literally. Mike Woods went there to look into Brittany's history, language, and culture. The rock in a bay near the village of Plougastel d'Aulas isn't easy to get to. There's a drive through country roads, a walk along a muddy path, then a descent of a steep embankment to a stony beach. The water is calm, though, in the large harbour known as the Roadstead of Brest. You can only get to the rock when the tide is out, even though the engraving sits above the water year-round. It's hard to miss, as if whoever inscribed it chose the most visible rock to work with. Town officials have made a habit of coming here to show the engraving to anyone curious about it. Michel Pogam deals with the town's heritage and historical sites. He says whoever made the engraving seemed to know the site well. They had expertise in sculpting and the material. Writing, we're less sure. It's possible someone else was telling the engraver what to do, but they were definitely from the profession. They knew how to etch into stone. <coughs> the engraving itself is about 20 lines of text, a few symbols, and the dates, 1786 and 1787. At that time, France was at war with England, and the army was renovating a coastal fortress called the Fort du Corbeau, half a kilometre up the beach. Maybe people working in the fort had free time to come here in the evening. It takes time to engrave like that, at least several days. Maybe they set up a campfire over there, a picnic over there, and one of them worked on the engraving. But that's just one thing we can imagine. As for the message on the rock, there's wide consensus that it's at least partly in the Breton language. Breton is part of the Celtic family of languages, brought from Britain in the early Middle Ages. A majority of people in the region spoke it for centuries, but the number of speakers has declined rapidly over the past hundred years, to the point that UNESCO lists it as an endangered language. Uh, these are photos my uncle took uh, 40 years ago, and which he, he gave to me. 
François-Paul Castel is a specialist of Breton, and he's part of a growing effort to teach the language to younger generations. His uncle published a transcription of the stone in an archaeological magazine in 1984, but no one has come up with a convincing translation so far. I have studied the inscription myself, and I have found a number of words which can be Breton. For instance, we have a word here, beacon, which means uh, forever in Breton. We have another word, uh, where, where is it here? Oh, arpris. Arpris is uh, a word meaning the clay. Or, you know, nace here means a nest, a bird's nest. Uh, of course, those words could also be in some other language, but they are all Breton words as well, you see. Castel has found that less than half of the inscription is in Breton, about 20 words, and they're not consistent enough to suggest a theme. But there is one full phrase in the language, and it sends an intriguing message. Through these words, you will see the truth. That's uh, the translation of a sentence which is at the very top of the inscription, yes. So it's, well, it, it is mysterious, of course, isn't it? Some see elements of other languages as well, including Basque, Spanish, Catalan, even Russian. Are they traces of sailors who've passed through here from around the world, or is the inscription the mark of some kind of secret society? All are valid questions, says town official Stéphane Michel, one of the jury members of the contest. It might be a mix of several languages, or even several codes, that would have been familiar among members of certain professions, particularly among sculptors. We are certain there is a logic to the sentences, to the alignment of the words, it's not just someone who engraved the letter here and the letter there. They had something to say. In terms of what the language, for now we're not sure. That's why we're interested in all the theories about it. But there's surely an answer, and whoever provides it will have at least some recognition. Recognition and a 2,000 euro prize. That's what the contest is promising. But the organizers believe that what motivates most participants is the passion for solving a mystery. Véronique Martin, who handles heritage, tourism and maritime affairs of the town, was surprised by the amount of interest that it's raised. Thanks to social media, the contest spread around the world. It's mainly attracted treasure hunters, or rather people who are passionate about research and solving mysteries. Most of the entries are from France, but we have others from Canada, Thailand, the USA, Russia, Argentina, Australia, and a few from Romania and from Spain. The jury members are looking for coherence of explanations based on historical facts and evidence, even if a complete translation is not possible. Whatever the result, the contest has helped to bring attention to the town and to the wider Brittany region shedding some light on its particular language and history. That's all for this week. We're off for a couple of weeks now. We'll be back after the Christmas break on the 9th of January. Until then, check out some of our other episodes, Spotlight on France. You can find us online or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can write to us, spotlight.france at rfi.fr. See you next year. Bye-bye.